Hello, and welcome to the first in a series of podcasts on all things fundraising hosted by InVision in association with Real Deals. I'm your host, Nicholas Neveling, a contributing editor at Real Deals, and on today's program, we will take a detailed look into the private equity fundraising zeitgeist. Private equity fundraising has soared over the last decade, and managers are sitting on record amounts of dry powder. But although headline figures are up, a number of buyout firms are still finding it difficult to close as LPs pair back GP relationships. Behind the impressive numbers, the market is one of nuance and complexity. And here to help me decipher these nuances and understand what is driving the market and how LPs are making allocations, I'm joined by two guests. My first guest is Munir Gwen, known to most in the industry as Moose. Moose is the founder and chief executive of fund advisor Envision and has worked in the industry for more than 30 years. He spent 13 years at Merrill Lynch, where he built up the bank's non-US placement business before founding Envision in 2001. He has worked on more than 300 GP funds over the course of his career. Moose, it's always a great pleasure to uh, hear your thoughts on fundraising, and we're going to cover a lot of ground today. But just to start off, I wonder if you could give us a quick fire fu- uh, summary of how you saw the market in 2019 and how you are positioning your business for the year ahead. Something happened in 2019. So in the years uh, prior, the investors were having some concerns about a recession coming. So in that type of environment, they basically go heavy U.S. dollar. They go uh, towards larger funds, uh, safety, safe pair of hands. And in this particular uh, cycle, they became uh, sensitive to loss ratios. Um, so, for example, in continental Europe, we have general partners who perform on a U.S. dollar net basis, 2x plus returns, but will have 20% loss ratios. They would not pick up the pen on those types of um, uh, general partners. Now, what happened in the, the middle, just before the middle of 2019, the investors contacted us and said, our book is full which means that for a fundraiser, you're not able to conventionally build a book of capital. You have to now change your tactic to find the one investor that is able to have some capacity to invest. Otherwise, you have to wait your turn for that investor to be free and then wait your turn for their capital to be available. And so the brunt of this was born in two different markets, actually. It was in the United States, where there's some fantastic product, but unless it was on a list two years prior um, and the, the investors were prepared for it, it had to wait its turn. But more importantly, the market that I believe is getting hit the hardest in this type of a scenario is the uh, the, uh, European market. In the European market, the underlying nuance here is in a good year in private equity, uh, there will be about $500 billion of available capital globally for everything. And if you're assuming an allocation to Europe in a global portfolio in this type of environment of around 20%, That's about $100 billion. And then you look through the funds that are coming through the market, and very quickly, five, six, seven, eight funds in Europe can take out 80 to 90% of that capacity. 
which then means that if you are funds in the one to three billion and you used to historically raise money in 12 months, prepare yourself for two year plus experience uh, unless you have a very high re-up rate um, with your existing investor base. The news I want to share with you is that those comments about being full we just got in January 2020. And if we look at the European market, it's under more distress in terms of access to capital than it was in 2019. Some very interesting thoughts there, and we'll certainly dig into a lot of those themes um, later on in the discussion. I'd also like to now join um, our second guest, um, Johanna Barr, who's a managing director at Advent International and the firm's global co-head of limited partner services. Johanna joined Advent in 2007 and has played a key role in raising the firm's last four funds. Last year, Johanna worked on the raise for Advent's ninth fund, Global Private Equity 9, which closed on $17.5 billion, little more than six months after launch. The vehicle was Advent's largest ever, exceeding the $13 billion raised by its predecessor in 2016. Johanna, it's great to have you here, especially um, having closed a fund relatively recently. If you had to look back um, over the last year and look at your interactions um, with LPs, indeed during the fundraising of, of GPE9, uh, what would you say they are focused on and what are they looking for in a manager? Well, first of all, if I sort of think back about the interactions we had last year and also the ongoing interactions we have with our LPs and conversations this year, I think LPs, as Moose quite rightly said, are overwhelmed by the number of their core relationships coming back to the market. I think what you've seen is that um, GPs maybe initially, uh, three, four years ago, came out a bit early hoping to catch the last of a good market, but now they're actually coming back because they've found good deal flow and have reinvested that new fund as well. And so you're having sometimes two, three-year fund cycles and as a result, LPs, frankly, just can't cope with the volume of um, GPs coming back to market. So as a result, uh, they are really prioritizing their key relationships. Uh, and in their own words, also having to make some really tough decisions on managers that on paper are actually very good and performing well for them in their portfolio, but where they've just run out of capital uh, to deploy in a specific budgeted calendar year or fiscal year. And so that's really hurting even existing relationships, but also, as Moose said, any sort of potential new names that might come to market or somebody they might have otherwise looked at in, in prior fund cycles, they now feel really um, yeah, stretched in their own capacity to look at that, both people capacity and dollar capacity. You keep hearing about this amazing fundraising market, but it does sound like there's a lot more complexity there. So we made our introductions, uh, the scene is set. Let, let's go into more detail about some of that complexity. Uh, Moose, if I could come back to you. One thing that has kept recurring uh, as a theme for the last 12 to 24 months, and this is something you mentioned um, in your first answer, it's that LPs are reducing the number of GP relationships. So two questions for you. Can you outline to what extent LPs are scaling back their portfolios? And why is there this urgency uh, within the LP community to consolidate relationships? There's a couple of aspects to your question. Um, the first that we need to understand is that the investor community in their portfolio construction is giving more weight to what they call directs or co-invest, uh, different profiles with different investors. But that can take from the pool of capital that we have available for primary funds 30% of the money away. 
so then the question is, which general partners can they have good deal flow in the primary book and in the direct book? So then the question is, larger investors in funds are, have a little bit more of a better position uh, in accessing uh, co-invest with a general partner relationship than smaller investors do. When I first began in the industry, it was not uncommon for an investor to have 120 GP relations, let's say 100. That's a lot of GP relations. But the diligence was a little bit lighter. It was um, a bit more focused on feeling comfortable with people. So um, it was more like having 10, 12 meetings with somebody before you'd committed to really get to understand them and feel comfortable with them. Uh, today, it's so statistically driven, and not only does it look at historical track records and strategies and strategy applications, but it also looks at the way that the general partners run now. It looks at their ESG policies. It looks at various other aspects, so that the depth of the work becomes really quite heavy, and people just don't have the time. And as a result of positioning this book of primary and directs, as a result of time allocation, and as a result of experience over time, this concept of core came into the equation. For most investors, it's still about 40 to 60 relationships, GP relationships, of which I would say uh, two-thirds of that is core. But now some of the LPs are looking at reducing that to 30 plus, and that, that's very concentrated that changes quite dramatically the structure of the portfolio. Now, we need to be a little bit careful because there are certain investors that have a different profile out there. So certain investors only look at funds that are sub 500 or sub $1 billion, or whatever currency you like, <laughs> Euro. Uh, and um, there are also government entities that in certain markets get involved and support, right? Um, either domestic support or not. But from this perspective, this concentration is here to stay, and it makes um, first-time funds more complex to raise. Now, in the United States, you have this um, diversity um, programs, and you have uh, emerging manager programs, and they don't really exist outside the United States. Um, and these programs in the United States enable us to keep creating new general partners. But, um, but in other markets, uh, we don't have that type of an access. So the only way to kind of create new people nowadays, and again, there's always exceptions here, you know, certain spin out with a nice attribution on a nice day might have some luck, but it's still a two-year process, is to go deal by deal. Because the amount of capital being allocated to those directs are quite high and it's not necessarily being fed. So we're finding that, um, you know, um, when we're now launching new funds, uh, we will do three to five uh, investments before we launch a fund uh, to build knowledge and to kind of work in parallel with this kind of two to three year fundraising cycle now for a first time fund. Yeah, there are two things that Moose mentioned there that uh, I was hoping I could pick up on with, uh, with you. Uh, the firstly was the the question of co-investment. Um, when you were raising uh, Fund 9, what were the conversations with LPs around co-investment and how happy or not are you to, to, or to, to feel obliged to, to offer co-investment to LPs? I think LPs, as Moose quite rightly says, 
do have or have built out large co-investment programs. In effect, it's their answer to reducing the fees of the asset class because they've been, um, I guess, unsuccessful in, in putting pressure on the GPs to reduce the fees straight out. But the co-investment is a way around that and it, it reduces the average sort of in price for them. The, um, so as a result, I think they are looking at their relationships more broadly and are willing to concentrate those relationships towards those which offer uh, a strategic angle. And that might be, um, co-invest might be one part of that, uh, a larger access to the fund um, with larger ticket sizes might also be part of that. And so, yes, in, in any fundraise, not just ours, I'm sure there's a lot of conversation around availability of co-invest. I think from a general partner perspective, you have to keep a few things in mind. First of all, our fiduciary duty is to all investors. Um, and so the co-invest really only gets generated when there is an outsized ticket size that doesn't make sense for the fund to take by itself. What we can't do um, is sort of just, let's say, for every deal we do, take a certain slice and, and generate co-investment because for small deals, they should be in the fund by themselves. And so that's sort of the dialogue or the explanation you have to have with investors to explain, yes, of course, if there is um, an unnaturally large, sizable deal or, there, or the investor brings a strategic angle to the deal, which can be the case where maybe we've historically had deals in regions where we don't have an office and so it makes sense to have some local pension funds of that country in, in the deal. Um, then it makes sense for the deal, um, then of course we will take them in. But that's sort of the, the dialogue we have. I think we also trying to be quite um, honest with, with investors and say that they should please do the underwriting of the fund based on the net returns the fund delivers and that any co-invest we generate in a way is sort of the, the icing on the top. One more thing, if I may, Johanna, just um, Moose mentioned the, the intensifying due diligence yep. and how much more uh, time is involved in, in manager selection. Um, is that something you've shared, uh, recognising in your experience? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just a diligence every three or four years. It's really an, a, a daily um, dialogue these days. I think investors post-financial crisis have um, you know, built out their teams and also become much more um, involved in the day-to-day, -day, checking in regularly with the GP on how the funds are doing, how the team is doing. And so even despite that, though, then the periodic fundraising activity does go much deeper than it did, let's say, 10 years ago. And so we're seeing that as well with um, diligence sessions um, you know, being pretty lengthy these days and just the amount of questions coming uh, being very detailed. Okay, so more continuous sort of rolling yep. fundraising yeah, all the in time. A, in essence, yes. I wanted to come back to another thing that, that Moose mentioned up top um, around the the timelines and how long it, it's taking to, to close a fund. Something that was interesting was that some managers, Advent, seem to be able to, to close funds above target relatively uh, short period on the road. And yet we've seen others, um, as Moose outlined, taking much longer you know, almost limping to, to barely making first closes. Johanna, if I could come back to you on this uh, initially, why is the market bifurcating in, in, in this way? And, and what was your sense of what um, distinguishes managers in one group from managers in the other? I think the bifurcation comes back to the point we make earlier around um, focus on the core relationships. 
And so any manager will have a good visibility on their own timeline to fundraise. So even though our fundraise included and others might have only taken six months, uh, I think it's fair to say that investors knew when we were coming into the market, when the data room would open, when the team is available for diligence. And so LPs, in essence, try and keep their diaries free. Maybe they can run two or three processes in parallel, but probably not more, much more than that. And so depending on their uh, relationships coming back, I'm sure they will prioritize ones over others in terms of doing the work and, and adhering to the timeline. I would, though, say the, the myth of the two or three week fundraise. I'm sure Moose can do them. I think I haven't in my, uh, in my history been able to do that. We give LPs plenty of time. So if you think about a six month process, that's a lot of time they can spend on uh, diligence with the team in the data room. Uh, sadly, also increasing time to do legals. I think that's one thing that's become, um, if I'm honest, quite um, yeah, lengthy over the last few fund cycles. Uh, in terms of protracted side letter negotiations, um, but it is actually quite a long time. If you know that's the window you're getting and you know three to six months in advance, that's when it's going to happen. And so it's not in our interest either as a, as a GP to rush LPs because it's a long-term relationship. Um, they're going to be invested with us, hopefully for the duration of the fund, anywhere 10 plus years at least. And so um, you know we, we don't want to rush our investors either. Moose, what are your thoughts on, on that point? In the 300 plus funds that I've raised, I've done one in two weeks. It was a real surprise because um, the investors are like, we know the story, we just want to sign. And it was a small fund. Yeah. So, <laughs> but um, all right. Now, this, this is what I currently spend days, hours, huge amount of time on. The investors have pre-selected two years forward. The general partners' portfolios, and I mentioned that many in Europe have a somewhat higher loss ratio, that loss ratio has to be reduced to 10% or less. So the question is, when do you raise your head to get on a list? Because if the portfolio doesn't click in the mind of the investor, who is now being more selective, you're out. And then the book building becomes the kind of searching for the one, which I call, right? And so this is very critical. What does the portfolio look like? And the more time a general partner spends to f address and fix the portfolio, the more time they're out of the market. Um, and so there's a balance here that needs to be thought through. And the pivot point is the fund size. Because a lot of people look at fund size from a kind of almost ego perspective, because you know it's nice to be bigger the next time round, as opposed to a pragmatic perspective. If I was one billion, but my portfolio doesn't look right, let me come back at 750. It's fine, but in the eyes of the world, it's not, right? So they have to be one and a quarter. And what we work with, um, depending on the impairment of the portfolio, assuming that the portfolio is okay, we're assuming half your investors aren't coming back, which means that if you want to raise a billion and half don't come back, and you want to go now to one and a quarter on the hard cap, that's 750 that needs to be raised. So the question is, will we be able to access those investors in that, vintage, in that calendar year or vintage year? Because what else is in the marketplace in terms of competition for those rare euros? 
Is your investor base mostly American? If they are, they do everything in dollars, and the currency could have gone against you, which then makes somebody else look more attractive, which then makes it more difficult for you to raise. And, and it becomes a very complicated, nuanceful, uh, tactical type experience or process. And so in this current environment, it is absolutely critical to look yourself in the mirror and to be honest with yourself. And, you know, yes, you might be a great, you were once a great GP, but today you're having some difficulties. Adjust for it. Because otherwise, you will be in the market two and a half years in this current environment. It's just the way it is. Now, the alternative here is, again, and um, we're actually in discussions with a couple of uh, general partners, where they've got a fund, the fund still needs a little bit of portfolio improvement, but that means that there will be a gap in their investment cycle. So now we go directs. So we'll do fund number whatever, five. Then we'll do one or two deals on a standalone basis. Then we'll launch fund six. And these are the new concepts that we're now introducing to deal with the uh, kind of dynamics of the current marketplace. How open is a GP to taking that jump and sort of saying, yeah, we'll do to deal by deal before we go back to, to a fund? Are GPs still nervous about that? Um, it, this is a very good point. The majority of them stare at me. But those that have recognized what's going on hit the bid straight away. Ultimately, it's your choice. Um, you know, you could have an unsuccessful fundraise and spend three years of misery. Or we can stay very dynamic, keep the firm, you know, humming. Your deployment is working really well. Um, the firm is buzzy and the track record's moving. Um, you know, and, and there are small nuances to the uh, term sheets that can help create that little bit of space. One of them is to relook at your recycling clause, for example. If you um, kind of uh, alter a little bit the recycling clause, uh, you're able then to give yourself a little bit more breathing room uh, the investors are fairly fine with you extending a little bit your um, your investment period, but at a certain point, um, you know, it, the portfolio does isn't sellable just yet, right? And so this this new concept that we've introduced, which is you know a direct one, direct two, and then fund six, um, I am I think it just can work so well, especially in today's environment uh, where you have all this access to direct capital from a quite um, large number of investors. Ultimately, it's a fund of one deal. And so if that deal does well, it also means economics back to the team sooner than in a classic fund structure. Okay. And so it can actually um, keep also the firm going from an economics and incentivization standpoint. I, I just wanted to ask about how the, the LP universe has, has evolved and, and how it compares to you know, a decade to two decades ago. Um, Johanna, having recently uh, been on the road, how should GPs engage with LPs in different jurisdictions? And, and is my assumption that um, the LP base is much broader, much more global than maybe it would have been you know, an accurate one? Yeah, I mean, if you compare to 10 years ago, definitely. I think the, the biggest growth market in that period um, has probably been Asia, with just the emergence of a number of new sovereign wealth funds that just didn't exist 10 years ago. Uh, so that's been um, a big part of the growth equation. That said, I also though wouldn't underestimate 
the growth that comes from the traditional U.S. state pension funds. Because what's happening in that market is that you have, um, with increased liquidity in the asset class, through the increased secondary market, you have CIOs willing to increase the percentage allocation to private equity. And so if one of the big U.S. state pension fund funds moves the allocation from 8% to 10%, that's a huge uh, amount of money that's coming online into the market. And so keeping uh, very close to that uh, increase in allocations is also important. But in terms of geography, it is now a very global market. Um, I'd say from our experience, probably about 50% of the capital is still North America, though. Uh, maybe 20% or so Europe, 20% Asia, and 10% Middle East and sort of rest of the world. That's sort of how, how we think about it. On a slightly related point, what, what sort of conversations were you having uh, for the last fund close um, with respect to who got access and how much access they could get? Mm. Um, and when there is such strong demand for your fund, um, how much room do you have to onboard yeah. new investors? I think we always uh, naturally put, have to put the GP hat on in terms of uh, what we want to achieve in any given fundraise. And so LP diversification continues to be on top of mind, top of that list. So how do we keep the LP base healthily diversified by um, LP type, by geography, and then also thinking through maybe which large LPs we have today who for whatever reason might not be as actively allocating to private equity in five to 10 years time. So selectively also bringing new names on board. And so the way we think about it is that we always want to give our existing LPs the chance to increase their commitments vis-a-vis -vis the last fund. Naturally, that only works if the fund size grows. Um, but then also um, having an element of capital available um, that we can put aside for new relationships. And I think if you're very um, honest with your existing LPs about that approach and th that they still have the ability to grow, then usually that, that conversation is actually um, pretty good. I mean, it's just coming back to this uh, original question about the diversity of the LP base. Uh, I suppose my assumption was always that maybe 10 years ago, European uh, private equity mid-market manager would be raising capital predominantly from a domestic LP base, maybe a few US institutions. Um, what does the picture look like today? You know, which parts of the world have have pots of capital invest to invest that maybe weren't necessarily on the radar 10, 15 years ago. I think this domestic investor support in Europe really was um, back um, until the mid-2000s. And today the investors all kind of look the same in their constitution. And the domestic investor support that you're referring to, uh, one finds in um, other markets uh, like in Japan or South Korea or uh, in China, um, where in some cases, um, you know, they can be 30% or more um, domestically supported. But when we move to uh, you know, Western Europe, US, or generally global portfolios, they all have the same type of pattern. They're 70% plus US, um, up to 20% uh, Western Europe, uh, 5 to 10% China, some people reverse those and then zero to three for any market I haven't mentioned. When you're looking at the sources of capital, the U.S. market still keeps growing. And the big question in the U.S. market is the day that the public pensions become defined contribution. That's gonna take at least another three or four fund cycles. So for us in this room, uh, unless we, we're still working at 100 years old, <laughs> I think you know, we'll, we'll, be, uh, we'll be okay, but uh, that will come. 
Um, and the other thing to the point that Joanna was making, uh, Asia in AUM growth and potential asset growth um, has everything going for it. Um, but we're not seeing that impact yet. Uh, and that impact could also be potentially 10 to 15 years away from now. What does that mean? If you're a European general partner in the mid-market or the lower mid-market, if you're lower mid-market, try to find a bit more domestic uh, investors. If you're mid-market, do spend the time to make sure that you're structurally set up to be able to capture as much European money as possible because they are denominated in euros and you don't have this currency volatility uh, against the dollar, which I think will persist. Beyond the day, depending on the fund size, um, if you do get over two billion, two and a half billion size, you need U.S. investors and a lot of them. And the U.S. investors have different focuses that they have, like I mentioned before. Um, and you've got to be able to work. Now, the one nuance with these U.S. investors and the public pensions that Joanna mentioned is that almost all of them are gatekept. So, uh, you know, you've got to go through some quite strong processes to be favored by their gatekeeper as well as being favored by them. So it is fairly difficult money to access. And, um, and the latest pool of capital in the United States are family groups. And interestingly enough, that type of profile investor is growing in Europe and in Asia. Um, you know, in Singapore and Hong Kong before COVID-19 hit, um, just in the last six months, we had a dozen new investors in both uh, countries um, that came to market to do primary investing and begin their portfolios. I think you know, at the end of the time, the U.S. is there and the U.S. is here to stay for at least another 10 years. But one last nuance I wanted to say to you, which is very interesting. Five years ago, we did two first-time funds in Europe. One of them was 80% U.S. funded. 80% first-time fund. Uh, the other one was over 60% U.S. funded. Today, if we can get 10% U.S. funding for a similar type story, we've done incredibly well. And you ask yourself, what's going on? And that's the U.S. investors are so tied up with their re-ups in 2020 that we just can't get airtime. Um, and as a result, you know, in terms of positioning ourselves, we have to now do directs, um, which again, we will find U.S. investors and European investors and Asian investors and other countries um, and Canadians. But, um, but we, we do focus more on European uh, to be able to, you know, uh, access and try to play a little bit more and bring back the domestic angle. I think that's a great note to to wrap on. Um, I'd like to say a big thank you to to Johanna and to yourself um, for thank a very you. interesting conversation. We've covered a lot of ground and I think we have uh, dug in and found some insight into how the fundraising market is changing and, and how it is a lot more nuanced than maybe um, it may at first appear. Thank you both. And thank you all for listening.